Father in heaven, we come before you this morning just longing for you to impact our hearts in living in fresh ways. Lord, in our own heart, in the silence of our own heart, we just want to invite you, the God of the universe, to draw near and to speak to our hearts in transformative ways. Thank you, Father, that this is a request that you delight to answer. So I thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. For ten years, they waged war on the city. Day in and day out, they were there surrounding the city, trying to figure out how to break into the walls, but the city was well fortified. They couldn't figure out for ten long years, the legend tells us. They tried to get into the city of Troy, and yet they weren't able to break through. They tried different various methods of trying to get into the city, but method after method found them not being able to penetrate the walls of the city, not able to conquer the city. And so they got together and they were trying to figure out what to do. And you imagine as people are watching from the city walls, just content that they are able to hold the Greeks off for such a long time. And then one day, that day that the city had been waiting for finally came because the enemy left during the day and they got in their ships and they sailed off. And they left a large portion of their supplies there. And they were very excited about this because they looked out and there was this gigantic horse there. Might have looked something like this. They saw this horse out there and when they made sure that the Greeks were gone, they decided, well, let's go out and let's take this horse and bring it into the city. So the legend goes that they went out and they they grabbed the Trojan horse and they, they brought it in the walls of their city and they had a great party celebrating looking at this amazing horse this battle meant that they had designed to conquer their city was was now in their possession well that night they all went to sleep happy that finally they didn't have the army outside their walls anymore not realizing that inside the walls of their city they now had the enemy Because the legend tells us that inside of this Trojan horse, the Greeks had hid some of their special forces. And when night finally came, the the Greeks sailed back silently under the cover of night. And they again surrounded the city and they came up to the gates of the, the city and out of this horse crawled these warriors. And they stealthily made their ways through the street. They opened the gates and in marched the Greek army to overthrow the city of Troy. What a tragic thing. Here, they had defended so well against outside influences, but they invited in the danger, and the danger came within that finally led to the downfall of Troy. This is somewhat similar to what we find in the book of Revelation. As we've been going through the the seven churches in Revelation, the, the first church, Ephesus, what was it that Ephesus was lacking? Love. They needed to return to their first love. They were taking the gospel of the whole world. They were active for Jesus. They were doing wonderful things, but they lost their love for Jesus. Don't let that love for Jesus fail. That's not what God has intended for you. God doesn't want you just to go through the motions. He wants you to have an alive and living experience with Him that grows more and more fervent day by day. Then, we looked at the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a faithful church, and and Smyrna actually doesn't have any any, uh, rebukes by Jesus. But in the church of Smyrna, 
he simply exudes them to be faithful unto death because they're going to go through persecution. They're going to face hard times. And, and their encouragement is that Jesus is with them in those hard times. Jesus is with you in whatever difficulties you face. And as you are faithful for Jesus, you can expect that the enemy's not going to be happy about that. You can expect that he's going to attack just like he was trying to attack the city of Troy. He's going to do everything possible to get in and to cause havoc in your life. Now we pick it up with a third church in Revelation. And the enemy begins to change his tactics with the church of Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll pick it up with verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Do you remember that from back in Revelation chapter 1? When John sees this beautiful picture of Jesus, he sees Jesus clothed in a white garment. He sees him shining like the sun, brighter than the sun. And he sees him with this sharp, double-edged sword. Something that appears a few times in the book of Revelation. We'll come back to that later on. Verse 13 says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamos was a city that was also in Asia Minor. It was actually a city that had been willed to the Romans. It became one of the capital cities uh, before the time of Christ in Asia Minor. About the time of John, who was writing the Revelation, Ephesus had begun to supersede the city of Pergamos as far as its wealth and its power and it being the central city of Asia. But before this, Pergamos was an important city. Now, Pergamos, there's something interesting about it. It was built in such a way that part of the city was down on the plain, and part of the city, what they called the citadel, was up on an outcropping. So this was a, a, an easily defensible part of the city that, that was very difficult to be able to attack. Now here, he says, this is where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. Says, I know that you're dwelling where Satan's throne is. I know that you're dwelling in this difficult place to live. And that's really what Pergamos was for a Christian. It wasn't a, a, a place that was largely Christian. It was a, a city that had a, a lot of temples to worship different goddesses. In fact, one of them, uh, the goddess, I believe his name was Eclepius, is something that we have uh, a symbol from even to this day. If you look on an ambulance or if you look at the symbol for the American Medical Society you'll see, or Association, you'll see a staff with a, a serpent wrapped around it. Have you ever seen that symbol before? That actually came from this temple where people came from all around the world to experience healing there. They had these special chambers where they would take people, they would do their incantations, and they would hope that they had dreams. And then from these dreams, it would reveal what kind of special uh, remedies to do for the people in their illnesses. They had a lot of other different uh, worship uh, facilities there to worship different pagan gods. This was one of the places where emperor worship first began to gain prominence. Emperor worship was something that uh, was begun by the Roman emperors where they would actually require citizens to worship the emperor as God in order to be a faithful citizen of Rome. Not an easy place to live if you're a Christian. Not a place where you can be faithful to Jesus very easily because there was a lot of pagan influences. A lot of the culture was pushing people to do things that are completely contrary to the Bible. 
So Jesus says to them, I know what you're going through. I know where you live. I understand that you're living in a place that isn't so nice as Templeton, that's kind of out of the city, but you're living in the midst of this difficult place where Satan's throne is. Verse 13 continues, and you hold fast to my name. They're still claiming to be Christians, even though at that time it was, you were sometimes forced. You remember the church of Smyrna was forced into worshiping the emperor or they would face death. Or they were forced into denying Christ or they would face death. But here you find a church that is being faithful. They haven't denied the name of Jesus. They did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now you remember back in the church of Ephesus, it was told the church, I hate have this, uh, you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But here something has changed with this church. They no longer have a hatred for the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but instead they're beginning to tolerate them. Now you remember the church of Ephesus went from the time of Christ until about 100 AD. These are all symbolic, the symbols in Revelation. These are time prophecies of the Christian church, looking at the Christian church and how it was going to develop over time. Jesus gave us these pictures and glimpses of the Christian church. Then you have the church of Smyrna, which started in about 100 AD and went until the edict of Milan in 313 AD, when suddenly Christianity was no longer under persecution because Constantine suddenly gave favor to Christians. Now, Paul had warned that something like this was going to take place. Put a verse up here on the screen. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, it said, For I know this, this is Paul talking to the, to the Ephesian elders, if you remember. He says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This was Satan's first method of attack. It was to come in and to do whatever it took to crush the Christian church. But then it goes on to say this, Also from among you, among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So first Satan's method of attack is going to be coming in like a savage wolf and destroying you, but then from within you, some of your own men are going to begin to lead you astray. Now, do you remember the story of Balaam? This is back in Numbers chapter 22. Balak, the king of the Midianites, comes to Balaam and asks Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Because here come the Israelites. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to come to the promised land again. And he's seen what they've done to different armies. And he's seen how they have overrun different nations. And here they are, this massive group of people. And as he sees them, it says like the sand of the seashore. 
these two million people there in the wilderness, as he sees them there and he looks at them, he says, I've got to stop them from overrunning my nation. So he goes to Balaam, who was a prophet of the Lord, and he asks Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. So Balaam says, well, I can only do what the Lord asked me to do. And there's an amazing story there about how really he's going against God's will. He's really wanting to follow his greedy desires because uh, they've offered him so much money. But eventually, Balaam goes. And like he said, he can only say what God tells him to say. And as he is put on a high place to look over the Israelites, he has Balak offer all of these sacrifices. Balak offers seven sacrifices and then he goes and he gets a word from the Lord and then he comes and he, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is blessings. Beautiful blessings. In fact, in some of the prophecies that Balaam gives, it, it predicts Jesus coming. It predicts the morning star and it, it's an amazing prophecy about Jesus. And time and again, Balak would take him around. Well, maybe if he sees them from a different angle, maybe I can attack them this way. But as Balaam would be there, he would pronounce a blessing. It's happened time and time again. And Balak is so frustrated. And in fact, I think Balaam was extremely frustrated because here he wanted to do what Balak was asking because he wanted the wealth. He wanted to be able to make this king happy. But again and again, all he could do was bless God's people. And when God's people are faithful to him, God is able to protect them. God is able to watch out for his church. And that's what you find with the Ephesian church. That's what you find with the church of Smyrna, that God is able to be there with his church because they're faithfully following Jesus. But after Balaam goes through all of this, he went home. But then he comes back in chapter 25, and he tells Balak, okay, so it didn't work to attack them from the outside. Now all of this conversation isn't recorded, but this is what we assume based on what took place. Because he then taught Balak to place a stumbling block, as it says here, before the Israelites. How did he do that? Well, they, had, they were at Baal Peor, where there was this great place where they worshipped Baal. And they had these idolatrous feasts. And they began to invite the Israelites to come over to their feasts. And then they began to send some of the Midianite women into the camp to be there and to seduce the Israelites into harlotry. And here these Israelites who were safe from the outside, when, when they were threatened from the outside, they were safe. But when it came to those seducing women coming into the camp, the Israelites began to cave. As, as it seemed like friendship was taking place, they said, well, it's not that big of a deal. God said not to, to intermarry with these nations, but it's really not that big of a deal. Let's go ahead with it. It's not really a big deal to keep the seventh commandment. I, this is just too good to hold back from. And before long, God's protection is withdrawn from the Israelites. And the Israelites began to die from a plague. And that plague was only stayed by the Israelites returning to faithfulness to Jesus. You see, Jesus can't stand it when his people are separated from him. And that's what Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, that when we commit iniquity, it separates us from God. Oftentimes as a church, the enemy may try to press in from the outside, and if he's not able to press in to our lives corporately or individually from the outside, his next method is to try to creep in within 
and to create and wreak havoc in our lives. He tries to come in from the heart. He tries to find avenues from within in which to lead us astray. This is what we find happening in the Christian church after the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. We'll get some pictures up here on the the screen. Christian doctrine began to change under uh, under Constantine, who began to make Christianity popular. In fact, one night before a great battle, he saw this vision where his soldiers had this emblem of the cross, and he suddenly decided that that's what God was telling him, and so he ended up marching his army through a river and baptizing them and then putting the image of the cross for his battles. He took Christianity from being this oppressed group of people and made them the popular group of people. In the book, Development of Christian Doctrine, page 372, it says, We are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to commend, recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. You see, Constantine wanted to make Christianity popular to the people. And so what he began to do was to take things which they had in their pagan traditions and to put it into the Christian church. He said, well, why don't we just combine? And if we combine it all together, then we can worship God together. Because here the pagans, they're, they're pretty adamant about their feasts and the things they do at their pagan temple. So if we could just bring some of that into the Christian church and make Christianity popular, we could unite the empire together. As Constantine thought about this, there's some evidences of this. If A couple slides later. Who is this person? The next slide. Do you know who that person is? This is in uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's what many people assume is St. Peter. But in all actuality, who is it? I heard it. It's actually Jupiter. Right? So they took this pagan statue and they put it in the Christian church and they said, okay, we'll pretend that this is Peter. Now along with this, they took the Greek idea of the immortality of the soul, that the soul goes on living forever and ever. And they said, okay, Peter is still alive, so now what you need to do is come and worship this statue and the righteous works of Peter can be transferred to you. Do you see how Christianity is facing a crisis because it's coming from within now? The attacks of the enemy are coming from within rather than from without. A couple slides later, it says, The Roman church and the Roman state united to make Christianity more acceptable to the world. During the age of compromise, the pagans' day of the sun replaced the Bible Sabbath. So not only did they do this with images, But they also did this with the day of worship. They said, hey, Jesus raised from the grave on Sunday, right? Let's celebrate that. Never mind that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that baptism is to be what leads us to remember Jesus and the resurrection. And that the communion is what leads us to remember the resurrection. Let's have a worship day on Sunday that will lead us to remember the resurrection. 
In History of the Eastern Church, page 184, it says, The retention of the old pagan name of Diasolus for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of pagan and Christian sentiment, with which the first day of the week was recommended to Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. Christianity, little by little, was beginning to be infiltrated from the inside. Changes were taking place that began to change the church. And so as Jesus looks at this, he says, this has got to stop. I don't want for this to take place. I recognize that you're dwelling where Satan's throne is, that you're not overtly going after these pagan things, but little by little you're letting the world influence you and how you worship me. And I don't want you to continue in that way. Back in Revelation chapter 2, after describing this, Jesus says this in verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, Jesus isn't very tolerant when people are placing a stumbling block before others. Jesus is full of grace. He's full of mercy. But anything that separates a child of his from him makes him extremely upset. I was just reading through the Gospel of Mark this past week, and it struck me in Mark chapter 9. You can go there with me. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Here Jesus is describing how he feels about anyone that places a stumbling block in front of another person. Verse 42 says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. When somebody tries to pull you away from Jesus, it makes Jesus upset. He loves you. And he wants to do everything possible to be with you. And he wants to do everything possible to save as many as possible. So Jesus wants to do whatever it takes to get rid of the stumbling blocks in our lives. Then he goes on to to say this. Not only are there stumbling blocks placed by others, but apparently there can be stumbling blocks that we place in our own lives. Look at verse 43 of Mark chapter 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says it would be better for you if if your own hand is causing you to sin. If, If you're walking along and it's causing you to be tempted, just cut it off. It would be better for that than for you to be cast into hell. That hell fire that will totally consume you. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Jesus is passionate about having your love. Jesus is passionate about being primary in your life because he knows that sin is hurtful. When I read this, I think, man, Jesus, this is, this is kind of intense. You're really telling me to chop off my own foot if it's leading me into sin? That, that seems kind of extreme. 
Jesus knows the extreme results of sin in my life. Every once in a while, I go to the dermatologist. Now, I'm a light-skinned fellow that has a fair number of moles on my skin. And when I go to the dermatologist, I usually beg Leah to come along with me because I need a little comfort while I'm there. Pretty much every time I go to the dermatologist, they find something that they need to cut off my body. Now, this is a person that I don't even know. This is a, uh, he has, he's a doctor, but I, I trust him to take a knife and to cut something off my body. This happened just a few weeks ago. Thankfully, it wasn't cancer or anything. We're, we're good to go. But I trust this man to take a knife and to cut something off my body because I believe that he has my best in mind. And when Jesus asked me, and he says, hey, would you cut this out of your life? Would you cut off your hand? Would you do whatever it takes to get the, let this sin be taken out of your life? And I know who Jesus is, that Jesus went to the cross for me. And he asked me this, I say, Jesus, go ahead. Do what you need to do. Cut what you need to cut because I know that you only want an abundant life for me. Like we talked about last week, those two cups. Jesus drank that cup of filth, that cup of shame, that cup of guilt, so that I could drink that beautiful, pure cup of life that He has promised to you and me. So why do I keep going back to that old cup? Why do I try to hold things back from Jesus, not wanting Him to cut it out of my life? One way or another, that stuff will be cut off this planet. In Revelation chapter 19, it depicts this beautiful picture of Jesus coming back on a white horse and on his thighs engraved King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as he comes back, it says that there's a sword that comes out of his mouth, just like we read about in Revelation 2. This sharp, double-edged sword that he strikes the nation with. What is this business about cutting and swords? What is Jesus really talking about here? In Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we should take up the full armor of God. And one of those elements is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Now it's important to remember that it's the sword of the Spirit. It's not my sword. If I pick up the Word of God and I say, I've got my sword with me today, and anybody that tries to deny what I believe is truth, I'm going to chop them with it. That can be a really dangerous thing, because it's the sword of the Spirit. The truths that are in here are powerful, but they're only powerful when they're wielded through the power of the Holy Spirit. But when on a daily basis I come to the Word of God, and I ask Jesus to speak to my heart through His Word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to work in my life, He can do that cutting work today rather than on the judgment day. He can come to my life and He can begin to say, hey Zach, you know how you like to look at such and such website. That's really not helping your Christian walk. I need you to cut that out. He can look at my life and He can say, Zach, when you go here, it really isn't helping your Christian walk. I, I think that you need to stop participating in that activity. And as I look at the Word of God, it it reveals to me things that are harmful to my Christian experience. This is what it's talking about in Hebrews chapter 4 when it says this, 
Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the Word of God. And interestingly enough, just like how with Balak and Balaam trying to stop the Israelites from entering the land of promise, here in Hebrews chapter 4, it's talking about how there is a promised rest for you and I to enter. The promised rest of a full trusting relationship in Jesus. We are on the verge of the promised land, you and I. And in order to enter into that rest of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, it tells us this in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. It says, lest any of us have the same issue that the Israelites had when Balak sent the harlots in, when he attacked them from within, when he deceived them from within their own camp, lest we have that take place in our lives. Let's do this. Be diligent to enter the rest in verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you're wondering how to have a closer walk with Jesus, go to the Bible. If you're wondering, is, is this activity helping my Christian walk? Go to the Bible, because the Bible is promised to us that it is a, a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. It's through the Bible that we experience revival. It's through the Bible that Jesus can actually give us an abundant life. But if we don't know the Bible, we can wind up in the same danger that the Christian church of Pergamos was experiencing as during the time when Constantine came in and little by little Christians began to follow after these pagan influences, if they had clung to the Bible in this time, which some of them did, if they had just clung to the Word of God, trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, then Jesus could have prevented so many of those errors from coming into the church. In my life, I recognize that we are living on the verge of the promised land. And that the enemy wants to stop us from entering. He wants to do whatever it takes to keep us from entering in. Will I allow Jesus to wield His sword, that scalpel of the Word of God, and day by day, let Him perform open heart surgery on me? Say, God, look at my life. Is there anything there that's separating me from you? Because I love you more than any other and I want to serve you with my whole life. Would you please reveal anything dangerous, any sin in my life that's keeping me from you? Without the Word of God, we're totally blind to the stuff that causes us to stumble. But with the Word of God as our constant shield, our constant dependence, when we're immersed in Scripture, it brings revival like nothing else can do in our lives. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it talks about how the Israelites were there on the verge of the promised land. In page 457, it recounts how this experience is something that is to warn us in the days that we're living in. It says, the Israelites who could not be overcome by the arms or by the enchantments of Midian fell a prey to her harlots. And as we approach the close of time, as the people of God stand upon the borders of heavenly Canaan, Satan will, as of old, redouble his efforts to prevent them from entering the goodly land. Isn't that what Revelation 12 tells us? That the 
enemy is especially enraged against the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God. God wants to do everything to keep you faithful, and the enemy wants to do everything to cause you to stumble. And he's okay with you sitting in church. He's okay with you being an apparently faithful follower of Jesus so long as you're not truly letting that relationship with Jesus take precedence over everything else in your life. Page 459, it continues, It was when the Israelites were in a condition of outward ease and security that they were led into sin. Just like with the church of Pergamos, how they were no longer threatened with persecution like they had been in the time period of Smyrna. Now they were in favor with the Roman Empire. It was easier to be a Christian in this time. And it was that time when they especially were tempted by the enemy. They failed to keep God ever before them. They neglected prayer and cherished a spirit of self-confidence. Ease and self-indulgence left the citadel of the soul unguarded and debasing thoughts found entrance. Pergamos, the actual name of the city Pergamos, meant citadel, just like that citadel that was so easy to defend there on the mountain, but really that the enemy had already infiltrated from the inside. It was the traitors within the walls that overthrew the strongholds of principle and betrayed Israel into the power of Satan. It is thus that Satan still seeks to compass the ruin of the soul. But at least Satan's not doing that in our lives today, right? I mean, because we're good. We have the Bible. We're here on a, the seventh-day Sabbath. We're worshiping. I don't see any images of Jupiter around this church that any of you are bowing down to and kissing. So let's just keep focused on all of that out there and assume that we're safe in here. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to assume. He wants you to be so focused on the enemy out there that you neglect the enemy in here. He wants you to be focused on the beast out there and neglect how the beast may have a seat in your own heart. Continues page 459. Satan is using every means to make crime and debasing vice popular. We cannot walk the streets of our city without encountering flaring notices of crime presented in some novel or to be acted out in some theater. The mind is educated to familiarity with sin. That which we dwell upon becomes familiar to us. It becomes commonplace to us. And friends, I believe that our culture has still begun to infiltrate from the inside. I believe that today we live in a culture that is teaching us to be okay with violence. It's teaching us to be okay with sexual immorality. And maybe we're not outwardly practicing it. But what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you say that the law says you shall not murder... I say to you that if somebody looks at a man with hatred in his heart, he's already committed murder. It says, do not commit adultery, but if you look on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. So what happens with me? If I sit down to watch a TV show, or I sit down to watch a movie, or I turn on a YouTube video, or I'm scanning through Facebook And I see images of violence. I see images of sexual immorality. What is that doing to my mind? Could it be that the enemy is infiltrating, that he's coming in, and that he's trying to keep God's people who are seeking to follow the truth? He's trying to weaken them from the inside out. He goes on to say, The course pursued by the base and vile is kept before the people in the periodicals of the day. 
it's hard to even look at the news anymore and not to see just constant violence as the constant topic of the news. And everything that can excite passion is brought before them in exciting stories. They hear and read so much of debasing crime that the once tender conscience, which would have recoiled with horror from such scenes, becomes hardened and they dwell upon these things with greedy interest. Have you noticed how it used to be that a a school shooting would suddenly be horrific to us? We've become so accustomed to it that it's like, well, yeah, it happened again. The things, the images that are constantly given to us begin to numb our senses until we're no longer as sensitive to Jesus as Jesus is longing for us to be. And Jesus is passionate about you. He loves you. And He wants nothing more than to have communion with you. He wants nothing more than for His Word to be living and active and exciting to you. So if what you do on a daily basis, in the evening when you have some free time, if that doesn't leave you feeling like you want more of Jesus, if it doesn't leave you feeling like you want more of His Word in your life, cut it out. Because Jesus is worth so much more than that. What principles can I live by? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 is a great one. that can guide my my life in a time when culture is pressing in all around, when culture is honestly becoming a part of our church, when sometimes we still follow the world even though we outwardly profess to follow the commandments of God. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you want Jesus with you? Do you want to walk with Jesus on a consistent basis? Then use the Word of God as a filter for your life. Say, is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this noble? Is this thought a thought that would bring honor and glory to Jesus? And if not, ask Jesus to take it away. Surrender that to Him. Do it with the entertainment that you're a part of. Do it with how you spend your time because it is desperately important that we follow Jesus with our whole hearts. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing will be faithful in much. We're talking about things that seem like very little things. But then he goes on to say, but he who is unjust in a very little thing will be unjust in much. If we're not able to stand for Jesus today when things are easy, if we let Satan have inroads into our life today, how will we stand when things get tough? When that beast on the outside begins to press in in real ways, when the, the Antichrist power receives the ability to, to enforce the mark of the beast and to force us to worship in a certain way, how will we handle that day if Satan has an inroad into our heart today? I want to have a loving relationship with Jesus. And so I want every day to simply come to his word and say, Jesus, Would you let your word be living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and cut out any cancer in my life. Cut out anything that is separating me from you. If that's the desire of your heart, I just want to invite you to raise your hand with me as I pray. Father, we're committing to a daily experience in your word.
to daily humble ourselves and to come to your word and ask that you would use your word to cut out the stuff in our life that separates us from you and to restore a deeper, to revive a more full relationship with you that's filled with love, that's filled with the joy, the peace that comes only from knowing Jesus as our personal Savior. Lord, some of us today have been impressed about very specific things that are separating us from you. Things that we know are giving the enemy inroads. And Lord, in our own strength, we can't change. But we're asking that we, as we surrender these things to you, as we allow you to cut these things out of our life, that you would give us victory so that one day we can stand on that sea of glass clothed in robes of white that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Cleanse us with your blood this Sabbath. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.